This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back to the show, Rounds Table listeners. Thanks for tuning in for another great week at the table. We have another new fantastic guest on the show today, and I'm very excited to introduce you to him. His name is Dr. Freddie Frost. He's a general internist specializing in respiratory medicine. He's also a research fellow in respiratory medicine at Liverpool Heart and Chest Hospital. He joins us today all the way from jolly old England. Dr. Frost, thank you for coming on the show today. Thanks, Kieran. Really good to be here. I'm really looking forward to discussing these two articles. So we are growing our international appeal and reach, and we are lucky to have uh, a UK perspective on respiratory medicine this week. And Dr. Frost is going to introduce to us the article he chose for this week. Take it away, Freddie. Thanks, Kieran. So the article that I'm going to talk about today uh, was published in the New England Journal of Medicine on the 5th of April. The lead author is Rahul Batnaja. He's from the Academic Respiratory Unit in Bristol here in the UK. And it has the title, Outpatient Talc Administration via Indwelling Pleural Catheter for Treatment of Malignant Pleural Effusion. Ah, homegrown talent, it sounds like. So tell me, Freddie, what was the bottom line for this randomized trial? So, Kieran, the bottom line in this article is that in this randomized control trial across 18 centers in the UK, talc plus indwelling pleural catheter is superior to indwelling pleural catheter alone for achieving pleurodesis. So when I first read this article, I I mean, it's obviously an important finding in the sense that there's going to be a difference, as you'll soon find out. But I really wanted to know why you chose this article and why is this an important study as far as advancing clinical medicine such that it made the New England Journal of Medicine? Can you give us a little perspective on that, Freddie? Here, I think there's a couple of re- things here. Firstly, it's not often that interventional randomized control trials are performed in people with a palliative diagnosis. For obvious reasons, they're often a difficult patient cohort in which to perform studies. So I think partially it's recognition of what the authors have actually achieved here in completing this study. Second of all, pleurodesis is actually quite a burdensome procedure, particularly if a patient has to come into hospital, undergo a chest drain, then drain to dryness, followed by talc, which can sometimes, uh, the admission can sometimes take up sort of five, six days. So the fact that this study used a outpatient protocol and patients didn't need to be admitted to hospital potentially has ramifications for pleural surfaces as well as obviously the patients themselves. And Freddie, I think you're being strategic. You've clearly listened to the show before. You know I'm very interested in palliative care research, so an excellent choice, I must say. But I certainly agree that that sounds like there is some very valuable information and questions that we need to answer about how to help this unfortunately very sick population, but there's still lots we can do for them. So take me through the design of the study. Where did it take place and how did they go about answering these questions? So Kieran, the study was a patient-blinded randomized control trial that was performed across 18 centers in the UK. Some of these centers were large tertiary centers. Uh, some of them were sort of smaller secondary centers. Uh, and patients were considered for inclusion as long as they had a malignant pleural effusion and a life expectancy of greater than two months. The malignant pleural effusion could be uh, from a primary anywhere in the body. It didn't have to be a lung primary. They were excluded if they had had previous pleurodesis attempts in the last eight months on that side or if they had uh, loculated fluid on ultrasound or evidence of lung entrapment. So we're looking at individuals with an incurable cancer who have a malignant effusion who are expected to live long enough to benefit from the intervention 
and those who have not failed prior attempts. So we're really looking at a selected group of individuals overall to test whether this is an effective treatment or not. What was the actual treatment, Freddie? Take us through the intervention. So the question that the study investigators wanted to answer was, is the addition of talc to indwelling pleural catheter better than indwelling pleural catheter alone at achieving pleurodesis? So clearly, as you alluded to there, there's some selection going on and that all patients were undergoing indwelling pleural catheter anyway. So after they'd had their indwelling pleural catheter, all patients then have routine follow-up care uh, as per their local hospital, local centre for 10 days. This included ambulatory drainage in the community, uh, which was seemed to be approximately two to three times during those 10 days. On day 10, they then returned to their study investigators and had drainage in front of the study investigators and a chest x-ray was taken. If the chest x-ray showed that lung apposition was greater than 75%, so less than a quarter of the lung was uh, obscured by fluid, then at that stage they were randomised. Now, if they had more than a quarter lung worth of fluid on the chest x-ray, then they were excluded. So those patients were excluded, and everyone else, i.e. those with a small perifusion, were randomised uh, to either talc or placebo, which was 50 mL saline, and both interventions were instilled into the indwelling pleural catheter via opaque tubing and from behind the patient, such that the investigators deemed it was a patient-blinded intervention. Wow, okay, so we are really looking at an even further selected population of an already uh, selected population to begin with. Tell me, Freddie, give us a little perspective from your experience in respiratory medicine how frequently will patients with a malignant effusion receive an intrapleural catheter? Is this a standard of care that all people will receive? Or again, are we further selecting down our population and those who are interested in this particular type of intervention? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So I think in the last few years, there was a debate as to whether or not a high proportion of the malignant pleural effusion should be treated with indwelling pleural catheters as the first intervention. You can put them in and you can always take them out, although often they are left in permanently. I think locally where I work, if someone is having symptomatic uh, recurrences of pleural effusion that's requiring drainage, or there's a suspicion that that at presentation that that's the way they're going to be going, then that's the sort of patient group that, that we start discussing indwelling pleural catheters with. Fair enough. So take me through what they actually wanted to measure as success of this talc pleurodesis. What, what were they measuring as their primary outcome, so to speak? So after these patients had had the pleurodesis, they went home and they had routine local follow-up again, regular drainage as the study investigators saw fit. And the primary outcome was the rate of pleurodesis at 35 days. Now, the investigators defined pleurodesis as when there was two things present. The first thing being three consecutive drainages that uh, yielded less than 50 mils. And then the second thing, there also had to be a chest x-ray that showed less than 25% opacification of a hemithorax. So again, less than a quarter of the lung field taken up by fluid. Secondary outcomes that they looked at included some quality of life markers. They also looked at the total volume drained over the course of the study period and they also looked at the pleurodesis rate at 75 days, which was the last study visit. 
All right. So that makes sense. You're just trying to measure whether this is a successful procedure and that obviously is done overall to try to improve quality of life and symptom control. So I think that's a fair secondary uh, surrogate outcome there as well. All right. I get it. Take us through what did they find? Ready? Take us through the main findings here. So the main results of the study, Kieran, were that they found significantly higher rates of pleurodesis in the talc arm as compared to the placebo arm. So 30 patients in the talc arm achieved the outcome compared to 16 in the placebo arm. The hazard ratio was 2.2 and that had a p-value of 0.008. The secondary outcomes also favoured the talc arm. There was significantly higher quality of life in the talc group. There was a 50% pleurodesis rate at day 70 compared to 25% in the placebo um, and numerically the volume drained favoured the talc arm in that they drained 1.3 litres across the study period compared to an average of 3.2 in the placebo arm, although that number was not statistically significant. Perhaps more importantly, there was no increased number of blockages in the drain, which is something that you worry about when you instill talc. And equally, there was no significant difference in adverse events between the two groups across the study period. All right, so all of those outcomes seem to line up in the right direction. We see a, an approved success of pleurodesis that improves your overall quality of life, and that's reflected by a reduction uh, in the volume that you drain. Whether that was powered you know, appropriately for a statistical difference between the volume or not, I don't think really matters in this case. It all seems to make sense. One thing that I immediately came to mind when I was reading through this trial, Freddie, was this is a sick population. They have malignant pleural effusions. And although randomization should balance this, do, was there any differences found between d the rates of death in either arm? Yeah, so the randomization, as you would expect, did a decent enough job of evening out the comorbidities between the groups. But you are right to have a look at the mortality data because although there was no statistical significant between the uh, odds ratio for death in each group of the 21 patients that died 14 of them were in the placebo group and seven of them in the talc arm so you do wonder when those patients died and if a proportion of those placebo group patients died before the uh, primary outcome analysis then if you're dead uh, i don't think you can meet your predefined definition of pleurodesis and hence, uh, that may favor the talcom, certainly. Yeah, it was just a, a concern that I had, Freddie, for sure, that that was somehow biased towards the favoring the talc outcome in the sense that if you were not alive to achieve pleurodesis and there was more patients in the placebo arm that that occurred for, then obviously the talc just comes out on top. But that those differential de uh, rates of death may be just due to random chance, so we can't say that that was biased per se. All right. Any interesting thoughts you had or observations about this trial that you wanted to point out for our listeners, Freddie? Yeah, so I think overall this is a really interesting study. It's a pragmatic design in a difficult population in which to conduct randomized control trials. The way the investigators managed to get around that was by letting the local study teams sort of dictate a lot of the follow-up visits, duration and frequency of drainage, uh, things like that. Now, I think the main takeaway message, or one of the main takeaway messages, is that the results show that you can use a fully outpatient service without any requirement for admission to hospital at all to achieve double the rates of pleurodesis than the current uh, standard protocols for routine ambulatory indwelling pleural catheter. Now, tell me about any concerns you had with regards to 
you know, the definitions of pleurodesis when we discussed this beforehand, you brought that up and I thought it was an important point to, to raise. Yeah, so as we discussed earlier, the definition that they use for pleurodesis was probably not the textbook definition. I mean, the fact that you had to have less than 25% fluid uh, to be randomized and then the primary outcome still included less than 25% fluid. And theoretically, you could be getting a worse effusion. So, for example, starting off with, say, 5 or 10% of your lung filled with fluid, uh, slowly increase up to 15, 20%, perhaps due to a malfunctioning drain that was draining less than 50 mils each time, and you could still achieve the primary outcome. However, the authors did perform a number of uh, sensitivity analyses that all favoured talc, and I think the primary outcome results taken together with the quality of life and some of the other secondary outcomes make this a believable result and likely to change clinical practice. All right. And is this going to change your clinical practice? Yep. I think that in my patients who are undergoing intraimperial catheters, then I'll certainly be thinking about adding in talc based on the results of this study. All right, Freddie. So in light of this as a practice changing trial, and you know how we like that on our show here, of course, what are the main learning points that you hope that listeners will take away from this so they can reflect on their own practice and apply this in the future? So take-home points here for the listeners are that uh, if you've got a patient with malignant pleural effusion and pleurodesis is your primary aim, so for example, patients with the first or second presentation, then the evidence probably still supports conventional pleurodesis as reports in those studies tend to be uh, of success rates of greater than 50%. However, once the decision for intraimperial imperial catheter has been made, then I think the addition of talc seems a good strategy to increase your chance of pleurodesis. Fantastic. Well, I definitely learned a lot from this, and certainly those who I look after who are opting for indwelling pleural catheters, I will offer them talc pleurodesis as an outpatient procedure. This has been a great uh, discussion, Freddie, so thanks for bringing that to the table. Let's move on now to the article that I chose for this week, and it's a definitely a left turn from talc pleurodesis, but it's something that I'm interested in, and that's in clinical risk scores. And we're going to cover an article that looks at the comparative accuracy, so to speak, of cardiovascular risk scores for patients who present to the emergency department with chest pain. This study was published in the Journal of American College of Cardiology in February of 2018, and the first author was Dr. Dustin Mark uh, and his group of uh, researchers. Excellent. Let's get down to it. So what is the bottom line for this article, Kieran? Well, Freddie, this retrospective study of just over 118,000 uh, adult emergency department patients who presented for possible acute coronary syndrome found that the modified heart score, the original emergency department assessment of chest pain score, or EDAX for those of you who are familiar with it, and the simplified EDAX all predicted a low risk of 60-day major adverse cardiovascular events and these scores could be improved as far as their accuracy when you used cutoffs of troponin below the 99th percentile. Furthermore, it found that the original EDAX score identified the most number of low-risk patients, and therefore it may be the preferred risk score to use in this clinical setting. Okay, well, this certainly looks like a massive study looking at what is a massive problem. Certainly, I guess we all see plenty of chest pain presentations and trying to work out who we can send home can be tricky sometimes. So what makes this article important, Kieran? Well, I think you just hit that on the nail uh, head with your hammer there, Freddie. I'm not sure if I got that expression totally right, but close enough. The point is, as a general internist, uh, and a lot of physicians face this same problem, that we are constantly asked to evaluate chest pain in the emergency department. 
And as you rightly said, we have to decide in our minds some way or another whether we think that this patient in front of us is having a major acute cardiovascular event or has one of the other several hundred causes of chest pain that are non-cardiac related or not specifically related to an acute coronary syndrome. So clinical prediction rules, of which there are several, uh, can often help to reassure clinicians that what their instinctual impression is is actually correct. Things like the Wells score, for example, in uh, low-risk patients with uh, evaluated for pulmonary embolism. So when you have a variety of scores, I think these types of studies are important to compare our existing rules against each other uh, to determine which is most accurate and which we should be using in clinical practice. Okay, uh, so what sort of study was this and where did it take place? So at 21 medical centers within the Kaiser Permanente Northern California Health System, which covers about a third of the entire regions of insured uh, population, they looked at retrospective data that was derived from their electronic medical records in just over 118,000 patients who presented to those centers with chest pain. This was conducted between 2013 and 2015. So they included patients who were adults who presented to the emergency department with chest pain and had to have a troponin measured. I think that pretty much any patient who presents with chest pain and often patients who present without chest pain have a troponin measured, so that's pretty fair. Patients were excluded if they had a diagnosis, a clear diagnosis of myocardial infarction, if they had cardiac arrest, cardiogenic shock in the emergency department for that presentation or 30 days prior, or if they had a troponin elevation that was above the 99th percentile. So they had a clear elevation of their troponin, not one of these equivocal elevations that we're not really sure what to make of. And remember, these scores are really meant to get at whether these patients are having an acute coronary syndrome in the low-risk patients, not people who have a severe illness. So I think that's an appropriate criteria to apply. Okay, so the patient group sounds like the sort of people who we might be thinking about uh, wanting to send home. So it sounds like they didn't have a cardiac event on arrival. So how did they compare the different scores? So they compared the different scores' ability to safely predict non-acute coronary syndrome in individuals. Um, you can look these scores up as to, as to the components of each. But essentially, the heart score and the EDAC score and the simplified EDAC score, they all contain combinations of typical symptoms that you would have for cardiac-related pain or atypical cardiac pain as well. Some of them include traditional risk factors, and the heart score also incorporates ECG findings and changes, whereas the other scores do not. Now, this is kind of neat how they, they tried to do this in a retrospective manner. They used text string algorithms that they tried to validate to capture whether the symptoms that were reported in the electronic medical records were present or absent. And so... Obviously, that raises the questions of the accuracy of those text string algorithms, but assuming that we, we take that at face value as being true, this is how they approached that. And then what they did was they dichotomized each score uh, and the patients who presented with those scores into low-risk and non-low-risk categories with, with varying cutoffs. Um, and you can look those up if you're interested to know what corresponds to each. And finally, they further stratified populations based on the highest reported cardiac troponin I values that were obviously below the 99th percentile, if you remember they were excluded if they were above that, during that emergency department evaluation. Okay, so what was the primary outcome uh, for the study? So they looked at the cumulative 60-day rate of major adverse cardiovascular events, 
which are, as most of us know, defined as the composite of myocardial infarction, cardiac arrest, cardiogenic shock, and all-cause mortality. They also looked at the secondary outcomes, MACE, that included either percutaneous or surgical coronary intervention or revascularization. They called this MACE+, plus, kind of an interesting way. And they ultimately calculated the negative predictive values uh, for each of these scores to determine their accuracy in ability to, safe, ability to safely rule out ACS in these patients. Yep, this sounds entirely reasonable. So what were the results from this study? Well, I'll tell you a little bit about the population first here, because I think this is important to focus on when you're evaluating risk scores. What, what population are you evaluating those scores in? So there was just over 3 million emergency department encounters that came in for all causes. And after you apply all the different inclusion and exclusion criteria, they landed on just over 118,000, which is just about 3.5% of unique patient encounters for chest pain. 8% of those 118,000 individuals had a known 60-day MACE event. So that was sort of your baseline event rate in that cohort. Typical patient was, as you would expect for this type of a presentation, 59-year-old, male or female, about 10% ultimately were hospitalized at the index uh, emergency department encounter, and most had at least one, if not two or more cardiovascular risk factors. So I think a fairly typical patient there, you're not, you see for chest pain and you're trying to decide uh, what to do with them. Ultimately, just over 75% were discharged from the emergency department, and between 50 to 60% were classified as low risk by the scores. The EDAX score, the traditional one, was actually the best at classifying patients as low risk with just over 60% compared to the other groups uh, who are sort of mid-50s and low-50s as far as those patients being classified. Okay, great. Uh, so what were the findings? So point of clarification, Freddie, as I said, there was an 8% rate of MACE in the cohort. That was in individuals prior to exclusion for actually being identified as having a MACE in the emergency department or in the prior 30 days. When you actually looked at the rate of major cardiovascular events in the actual cohort, so to speak, of who the scores were being applied to, it was just under 2%. And ultimately, just under 4% went on to have uh, the MACE+, plus, so the, the sort of vascular intervention at some point. But here's where the scores across the board are particularly impressive. So the negative predictive value in a baseline event rate of about 2%, up to 4%, depending if you include PCI for this cohort, was over 99%. All four scores had over 99% negative predictive value, so very, very good at predicting a non-outcome. And then what the authors did was they combined these scores with measured troponins that were below the limit of detection in their centers, uh, and the risk of a false negative there was impressively low, like less than 1%, even in some cases less than half a percent. So I think overall what we find is that these scores are very reassuring when you have a low-risk patient with a low-risk score in front of you in your center, presuming your baseline rate of events is in the 3 to 5% range. Yeah, I think those negative predictive values you quoted would certainly help me sleep at night after sending somebody home presenting with chest pain. So uh, any interesting points or observations you wanted to make about this study, Kieran? Well, the authors, I should say, point this out, so credit to them. The cohort selection method and the way in which they excluded people with identified coronary events can result in a dilution of your sample with patients whose clinicians did not truly have concern for acute coronary syndrome, and therefore you're applying these scores, so you're sort of 
you know, what, what you would call in statistics a spectrum bias. And so that's something to keep in mind. The flip side, of course, is if you're a clinician who practices with a much higher baseline rate of acute coronary events, say, for example, if you're a cardiologist or even a general internist in some hospital settings where you're getting a higher referral bias, the metrics of these types of scores aren't going to be the same. Their predictive value will be different if the baseline rate is higher. The last thing I wanted to say is that remember that it was the authors and their algorithm, their computer algorithms who are computing these scores. So that's a very standardized way in which it's done, not the treating physicians that are in front of the patients. So it raises the question in my mind, how will this calculation of these scores and the application of these scores go when you have the actual treating physicians do them themselves, as there is some subjective interpretation as far as symptoms is concerned. And so we don't actually know how that would apply in real life. So ultimately, we're looking at these scores in an optimal application kind of a setting where a computer is doing it for you, as opposed to you doing it for yourself. Yeah, I think that's an important point. No one was actually discharged home based on these scores. There's always some talk about clinician gestalt and that idea that uh, you've got some sort of feeling about a patient and regardless of what the score says, you can always just admit them for further observation or repeat drop or some sort of investigation. And I thought it was interesting in this study that even though a significant portion of the patients was sent home from the emergency department directly, over 40% still had cardiac imaging or investigations uh, in the next month or so, which sort of suggests that although the team in the ED were happy to send them home, they still want to be reassured uh, by extra imaging. And perhaps these scores can help us uh, reduce some of that extra testing, which I'm sure the yield is quite low from. Yeah, definitely that speaks to our ongoing risk aversion in the sense that even though we're comfortable enough to send them home from the emergency department with a reassuring score, we still feel maybe more reassured to do so as long as they're going to go on and get some sort of further cardiac testing, which may or may not be appropriate as you bring up. So excellent point in the world of cost constraints and appropriate medicine. So excellent. Thank you for that. So what are the main learning points of this article for listeners to take home then, Kieran? Well, I think that what I've taken away from this helpful study is that in patients who present to the emergency department with chest pain, the use of these clinical prediction rules, and I think really you can pick whichever one you like from this study because they're all pretty good. These scores can augment your clinical decision making around disposition for your patients. And reassuringly, in a low risk score, in a setting where your baseline event rate is sort of between 3 and 5%, you can send home your patients and sleep at night. And I think so will they soundly. I think that these scores should, we should conduct some sort of further, let's call it a prospective study of some way in which we use these scores that are calculated by the physicians to look at the reliability between physician ratings. And as kind of on the vein of what you said, to, to see how rationally these scores can be applied. Because even in the face of reassuring numbers, Sometimes we as humans don't always behave rationally and we still may admit these patients for further investigations when the scores and our intuitions tell us everything should be okay. Yeah, I guess it'd be nice to know as well whether any of these scores perform particularly well at the other end of the spectrum in the high-risk patients, perhaps to sort of help guide you who you send for urgent PCI, who you send to the coronary care unit, who's, who goes on monitoring, 
that sort of thing. Freddie, it's been a great discussion of two great articles on the show, but as most of you know, now it's my favorite part of the show. It's the Good Stuff segment, where we're talking about what we are reading about. And tell me, Freddie, what is catching your attention in the medical news this week? Well, for my Good Stuff, I have gone for an article that I read in JAMA. It came out April 17th by Jennifer Wolge, and it's called Mentoring Millennials. And I liked it partly because it started off with this paragraph, which says that millennials have been shaped by profound expansion of information technology, enhanced social networking, and are connected to a global culture. I thought this was very apt considering we're currently doing a transatlantic podcast. The article basically uses a few examples and themes to highlight some of the potential pitfalls in the mentor-mentee relationship when the mentor is perhaps not a millennial and gives strategies or workarounds uh, to sort of optimize that relationship and uh, avoid frustrations. Uh, I'd highly recommend you give it a read. I will absolutely give it a read. As my mentors, no offense to them, are are older in age, but I must admit, to their credit, there are some of them are very connected and very uh, with it when it comes to uh, to technology. And I'm not totally sure if I qualify as a millennial. I might be just before them, but I'm not sure. I still haven't figured it out. Anyways, I read an article about the Green Gold Rush this week in the New York Times health section. And it's relevant, I think, to the podcast and to my perspective as a Canadian because various countries around the world, including Canada, are struggling with the legalization of marijuana in their countries, both from a medical uses and recreational uses in Canada, especially right now. We're about to legalize it in a recreational standpoint. And so... Italy, as it turns out, is facing an interesting challenge around the law and regulation of marijuana. It turns out, actually, that Italy used to be the world's second largest producer of industrial cannabis behind the Soviet Union in the 1940s. So they actually have a long history with the drug. But for the past year, small jars of cannabis flowers have been flying off the shelves of Italian specialty shops, and they're sold under the tag Cannabis Light. Light because they contain low concentrations of THC, one of the active compounds in marijuana. But there's an important warning label that comes with these flowers. Don't eat it. Please don't smoke it. And I think on the backside of these labels, there might be a couple of winky faces or nudge nudges. And interestingly, these flowers are actually legal to sell in Italy because of the strange law and regulations that have been set up or surrounding marijuana such that Italy does not regulate the use of its cannabis flowers, but regulates the use of all of the other aspects of the plant. So I thought this was kind of interesting, and it made me think about the line that whoever thought a flower smelled so sweet in so many ways. And I think I'm going to head over to Italy, uh, Freddie, and you're welcome to join me if you like. That sounds very interesting indeed. Perhaps we could have a podcast reunion uh, in Italy <laughs> next time. All right. Well, thanks, Freddie. It was fantastic having you on the show. Uh, and truly and, and genuinely, I hope that you can join us again in the future. Uh, and thank you for bringing your perspective on uh, a couple of very important questions. So we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Kieran. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. And yeah, we should certainly do it again sometime. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast. The Roundtable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes members. Thank you to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, 
Communications Director Anthony Maher, Segment Developer Shaliza Halani, and Faculty Mentor and Founder of the Rounds Table, Amol Verma. I am your weekly host, Kieran Quinn. Join us next week for an irreverent discussion of the latest medical research, because who knows what they have in store for us. <laughs>